This is Historicity, where we use our legs, eyes and ears to turn back time and see how the world got to be the way it is. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years, but when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside to walk the streets and to pick apart the layers. In these three walks, we're discovering a tale of two cities, the city of London and the city of Westminster, twinned concentrations of wealth and of power, a two-headed beast which birthed the world's first global city. We'll also explore the industries that emerged in the space between them, the lawyers, the journalists, the academics, who serviced, who sometimes tried to constrain power and wealth. We're fast walkers, but you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. Also, don't be surprised if you sometimes find your path blocked. We'll mention places with restricted hours, but London is always changing, building never stops. It should be easy enough to make your way around the obstruction and get back on track, and you can see the episode notes for maps. In this second episode, we'll be exploring the communities, the industries that emerged in the space between the two. The lawyers, the journalists, the academics, who serviced and who sometimes tried to constrain power and wealth. We'll pick up the story next to St Paul's, in the northeast corner of the churchyard by Paul's Cross. It's a good place to think about how an age of faith gave way to modern times. You'll find it just south of St Paul's Tube, which is on the central line. I'll meet you there. So here we are in Paul's Churchyard at the foot of Paul's Cross. This isn't the original, of course. This is an early 20th century echo of the original, which was here by the middle of the 13th century. It's where the people of London met in what was called a folk moot to make collective decisions, to pledge allegiance to the crown, maybe, or to bargain with it sometimes. By the 16th century, though, following the English Reformation, as people are wrestling with what it means to have faith, this is also the most important pulpit in the country. Preachers are coming here to wrestle with questions of faith. So here's John Donne, the famous poet, but also a divine, on the 5th of November, 1622. Some of you might recognize the date as the date of the gunpowder plot. It's the 17th anniversary of that plot, when Catholic conspirators try to blow up James I at the opening of Parliament and meet a grisly end. So here's John Donne at the end of a two-hour sermon delivered here, and he's pondering the duty of a people to their ruler and so to their God. Cities, he says, are built of families, and so are churches too. Every man keep his own family, and then every pastor shall keep his flock, and so the church shall be free from schism and the state from sedition, and our Josiah shall be preserved prophetically forever, as he was historically this day from them in whose pits the anointed of the Lord was taken. A 17th century man of God wrestling with the responsibility of his people. By then, though, by the early 17th century, the cathedral itself is in very poor repair. The first one is built in the early 7th century. It's replaced in the late 11th, early 12th century. But by the early 16th century, it's surrounded by buildings as the city is getting busier. The problems with the fabric are made worse by the Civil War, of course. So already in the 1660s or thereabout, Christopher Wren is beginning to think about how it should be replaced with something more fitting for the city's cathedral. And then, of course, in 1666, the Great Fire breaks out. 
two years later, the decision is taken to raise the site, but it takes a few more years to get things underway, given a project of this scale. Wren wants something more modern, the clergy wants something more traditional. Luckily, as the decisions get made, he's given a little bit of license to modify things during the building, which starts in 1675 and takes more or less 40 years. The new cathedral is finally declared complete in 1711. Of course, its role has changed over the years. It's a place for worship, it's a place for ceremonial. But it's also filled with monuments. It's an icon of London. It stood proud during the Blitz. There's a famous photograph of it during the Blitz, St. Paul's undamaged, standing tall amidst the fire. And of course, these days, it's a tourist site. But if you're looking for some quiet in the city, it's a good place to find it. You can still come to services in the evening for evensong, in the morning for prayer. And for us, it's a good place to start a walk between the city and Westminster. It reminds us that before there was modern economy, there was an age of faith. So we're going to start walking now and we're going to keep the cathedral on our left-hand side. So if you leave Paul's Cross at your back. And as we walk, we can begin to see the things that the cathedral has spawned, if you like. It's been a magnet for other activities. Printing starts up in Westminster in the late 15th century, but it's here by 1515. And by the middle of that century, by the middle of the 16th century, in other words, about half the printers in London, 15 of 32, are literally next to the cathedral right here. This area, specifically Paternoster Road, just to the north of here, was the centre of the publishing industry in the country until the Blitz, and then they disperse away. So we're going to walk out of the churchyard, and again, keep the cathedral on your left. Walk out into this kind of plaza next to the cathedral. Straight ahead of you, you'll see a kind of red brick building. This is the chapter house. It's by Christopher Wren again. He's just finished his work on the cathedral. He produces a chapter house. It's still where the Bishop of London has her offices. And as we pass the chapter house, you'll begin to see on your right-hand side an extraordinary ceremonial gate. It wasn't here originally. It shouldn't actually be here. It was relocated here from somewhere else. This is the Temple Bar Gate. Originally, it was much further down the road, and then it was taken away from there. It was stored in the countryside for many years and then relocated here from 2004, I believe. On the front, as you pass, you'll notice these sculptures. This is Charles I, Charles II, originally built after the Restoration, so in honour of the restored monarchy. We want to kind of pick it up in our heads and put it back down where it originally was. So we're going to leave St Paul's behind us. We're leaving it on our left-hand side. We've passed the chapter house and the gate on our right. And we're going to aim for the pedestrian crossing you can see right in front of you at the end of this little plaza. We're going to cross the road here. You can look down Ludgate Hill. We'll see it again on the other side. If you cross over this road and then just turn a little bit left... So we're on St Paul's Churchyard. We're going to take the next right, which is in fact Dean's Court. You can't see the street sign from the road, but as you turn right, you'll begin to see pineapples on your right, on top of this wall. This is in fact the original deanery for St Paul's, a 17th century house. So head to the end of the road and we're going to be turning right on Carter Lane here. On the corner, we're just passing what used to be the choir school for St Paul's. It has its own choir. It had to educate the kids who sung in it. As you can see, it's now a youth hostel. So we're heading down Carter Lane, and we're going to turn left on St Andrew's Hill. So we're turning left now. This building with these blue shutters in front of it 
just head downhill a little bit. You can see the road curves around behind the buildings. And soon we're going to see a pub called the Cockpit. And we're going to turn right at this pub. So turning right at the pub takes us into Ireland Yard. It wasn't always called Island Yard way back when in the medieval period. This is actually the entryway to one of the big monastic houses in London. This is where the Blackfriars, also known as the Dominicans, Blackfriars because they wore black, set up their base in London. They're here from around the 13th century. They were given a site which used to have fortresses on it. And they build a church at the top of the hill and then the rest of their buildings terrace down towards the river. As we pass a small little churchyard on our right, if you just poke your head in, you can see some of the masonry from the former monastery. But of course, come the 16th century, the monasteries are dissolved and the site is given over to other uses. But we've already seen that other things happen here too. We've seen that there was a cockpit at the entrance to the monastery. That was there in the early 16th century. And now we're entering into Playhouse Yard. If you look to your right, you can see the street sign here. Because this was where one of the early playhouses set up shop in 1596. So just head through this little courtyard past this old Magnesia house on your right. We have some older buildings here with a very contemporary building on our left. We're going to head around the edge of the house and towards this wall. Over the wall you can immediately see that we have some transport going on. This is in fact a railway. So this is where you can begin to see how things link together over time. The railway obviously a more recent invention. At the wall, you want to turn right, past a bollard and up this small lane. You've got a yellow cream hall on your right, and as you come up on it, you'll see that this is Apothecaries Hall. This is where the apothecaries set up their guild, and they're doing that in the early 17th century. So you have a monastery turning into a mansion, turning into a guild's hall, all in a very short space of time. So we're branching left up Waithman Street. We're going to see on our left a kind of nondescript building, but with some amazing tiling. You'll also hear some construction going on. It's relentless in the city, as we've said before. Sites continuously being repurposed, rebuilt, and so on. So we're going to head up to the end of Waithman Street. So at the end of Waithman Street, turn left. You'll see some steps. Go down these. When you get to the main street, if you look left, you'll see that the road leads up to Blackfriars Bridge, named after the monastery originally, over the Thames. On the other side of the bridge, you have the curvy building that we've already spotted at the end of the last walk. But you want to turn right up a little way to the crossing over this street, which is New Bridge Street. So at this busy main intersection, you can hear the traffic. You're going to cross over diagonally, so you're going to want to cross two roads. You're aiming for the building with the clock in front and on top a golden figure with wings. So I hope you've made it across the road safely. And you want to just go down the little steps here and maybe tuck yourself behind this railing, looking back up the hill towards St. Paul's.
This is a wonderful place to see how these layers of the city build up over time. We're actually outside the original walls of the city, but we're inside the territory still governed by the city. This busy intersection is Ludgate Circus, and it brings together four different roads. To our left, we have Farringdon Street. To our right, we have Newbridge Street, which we just walked on. Straight in front of us is Ludgate Hill, leading to St. Paul's, and behind us is Fleet Street. But none of these are here originally. What we have originally is one of a number of crossings across the Fleet River. It's a busy working river. Ludgate is one of the gates into the city. That's on the other side. And by the riverside, you have a lot of noxious trades, tannery, butchery, things like this, dirty trades, which need the water of the river to do their business, but also which other people don't want in the heart of the city. They begin to move out quite soon. A little to our north, we have the notorious Fleet Prison, named after the river. That's in existence from the late 12th century all the way to the middle of the 19th century. And then a little bit to our south, just off what is now New Bridge Street, we have Henry VIII's Bridewall Palace. It's not a palace for very long. By the middle of the 16th century, it's been turned into a combination facility, a school, a workhouse, and a prison. So we have various things clustering around the river, but the river soon becomes unnavigable by the middle of the 17th century. And so the city makes it into a canal, makes it navigable again, but then it silts up. And so in the 18th century, you have a different use being made of this space. First, you have Farringdon Street, the street to our left, being built in the 1730s. Then New Bridge Street is built in 1764. It leads to the new bridge across the river, Blackfriars, named after the monastery. That's not the big change, though. The big change really comes in the middle of the 19th century. That's when this particular intersection is built up. This is Ludgate Circus. It's a complement to a bridge you can see a little further up Farringdon Street, a new viaduct into the city of London, a way to facilitate commuting. But there's more to come. A railway is built just a little bit up the hill towards St Paul's. And of course the railway needs its own viaduct and of course the viaduct is going to block the view. So here's Punch, a comedy magazine of its day in 1863. Now then, make haste, make haste and visit to Ludgate Hill and behold, or nearly the last time you will have the opportunity, the vast and celebrated Cathedral of St. Paul, erected by that famous architect, Sir Christopher Wren, in the reigns of their majesties, the last of the Stuarts. Be in time, be in time. In a very short time, this remarkable edifice will become invisible, owing to the great improvement which the march of intellect and the progress of commerce providentially force on this great metropolis. Therefore, be in time before this view is shut out forever and ever by the highly ornamented tank in preparation by the railway company. And true enough, a few years later, the view is blocked. Charles Dickens' son says the view has been completely marred. He also notes that Ludgate Hill is steep, and in slippery weather, horses with heavy wagons have serious difficulty getting up it. Still, in the late 19th century, horses are being used to carry goods around the town.
The Fleet River, on top of which these roads were built, is now a sewer. It dribbles out into the Thames. That railway viaduct stays around for 130 years. It only comes down in 1990, and so we can see the view of St Paul's that we have before us. In front of St Paul's, you might notice another steeple. This is also by Christopher Wren. There's an argument that he's actually playing these two things off against each other, the spiky, smaller steeple in front against the contrasting dome behind. But what we want to do now is cross back over Fleet Street to the other side and start the first of three stories we're going to tell about the industries that occupy this space between the city and Westminster. So once you've crossed over Fleet Street, turn right just a little way up. You're going to take the next left just past the Punch Tavern into Bride Lane. So turning down Bride Lane, you'll see some steps on your right leading up next to a church and you want to take those steps. So we're coming up this alley and we're next to St Bride's. The current church was built by Christopher Wren after the fire It was built on top of an earlier church dating from the 11th century. There was some earlier building from the 6th. And originally, there was a Roman villa here with terraces leading down to the river. Again, it's quite a steep hill, even though you can't see it today because the road has been built on top. The reason we're interested in this church, though, is that it's the journalist's church. Fleet Street is a metonym for the press. The newspapers are here in force from the late 19th century until the late 20th, not for that long. But still today, St. Bride's is the journalist's church. Often a memorial service for a journalist will be held here, and the journalists will come back to Fleet Street to commemorate their colleague. This is a good place to pause the walk if you want to see these layers of the church. If not, we're going to just turn right up St. Bride's Avenue and when you hit Fleet Street, just pause there. So we're back on Fleet Street. Most of the operations on Fleet Street are actually smaller provincial papers. You can see them in smaller buildings further up the street. But if you pause here, we can see three of the big ones. Look up to your left, you'll see a huge building with columns in front. This is the Daily Telegraph, originally founded in the middle of the 19th century. It's here on this site just a little bit thereafter, but this building is from right at the end of the 1920s. Some people have called it noisy neo-Greco-Egyptian, another mashup, if you like. But the Telegraph moved out in the 80s following some fights with the unions, and very quickly thereafter, actually, Goldman Sachs, the bank, moved in. But the Telegraph is almost immediately gazumped by the building you have in front of you. You can see a curtain wall in black with acres of glass here. This is built in 1930 to 1933. And this is built for the Daily Express, another of the big daily newspapers in London. Again, the Daily Express has moved out. Again, this was used for a while by Goldman Sachs. There are now plans for a huge development behind this building, although the original is going to stay in place with a wonderful Art Deco interior. And then the third, right next to us on our left here, is where Reuters was based. Slightly later than the first two, in the middle of the 1930s. This is by Edwin Latians, the architect of New Delhi. He's just returned from there and he produces this in a very typically restrained neoclassical style for the press agency. Here we have the late 19th century, early 20th century history of the street. But there's an earlier history too, which also has to do with writing and with printing. 
So we're going to walk up Fleet Street, so turn left here, walk towards the Daily Telegraph, and we're going to want to cross the road at the traffic island. So we've walked up Fleet Street a little way, and now we want to cross the road at a traffic island. Right above you, you'll see an impressive frontage with Mersey House written. So cross the road here. So we've crossed the road. We're heading uphill again, past what used to be the Daily Telegraph on our right. And ahead of you, you'll see a little overhanging lantern with ye olde Cheshire cheese. So turn right under the lantern. So you can see from the sign that the pub has been here since the late 17th century. It's in fact a set of houses that were built in the late 17th century and then combined to form the pub. This is a pub that's built therefore to service the community that congregates on this street even before the newspapers come to town. One of my very distant cousins actually owned the place in the late 19th century, was famous for plunging a knife into a steak and kidney pie with great joy. So we want to continue going up Wine Office Court and we'll see what that involved. Once the newspapers arrive in the late 19th century, the Press Association is based here, the Journalists' Club. As we come out of the alleyway Wine Office Court into this little square, Goff Square, we want to branch left. You'll see a little sign to Dr. Johnson's house, and that's where we're heading next. As you come around the corner, you'll see a clock on the building to your side. Keep going up here, and you're heading straight towards this red brick building at the end. You'll find, as you turn the corner at the end, that you're still in Gough Square. It's not much of a square, actually. It's a series of squares. And at the end of it, you can see number 17, which is Dr. Johnson's house. Dr. Samuel Johnson, the great man of letters of the middle of the 18th century, a kind of epicenter of a world of letters. He lived in this particular house in 1748 to 1759. He compiles the dictionary in the attic. And of course, his life is chronicled by his biographer, Boswell. So here's Boswell describing Johnson. He's moved from this house. He's still close by Fleet Street and there over to the east of us in Greenwich. We walked in the evening in Greenwich Park. He asked me, I suppose, by way of trying my disposition, is not this very fine? Having no exquisite relish of the beauties of nature and being more delighted with the busy hum of men, I answered, yes, sir, but not equal to Fleet Street. Johnson, you are right, sir. So there is Johnson still affirming the value of the street. But there are other places where we see something else, where Boswell, in documenting their life together, reveals the hierarchies of race, of class, and of gender on which the street is based at the time. 1773, April the 11th, being Easter Sunday, after having attended divine service at St. Paul's, I repaired to Dr. Johnson's in the dusky recess of a court in Fleet Street. I supposed we should scarcely have knives and forks and only some strange, uncouth, ill-dressed dish, but I found everything in very good order. We had no other company but Mrs. Williams and a young woman whom I did not know. As a dinner here was considered a singular phenomenon, my readers may perhaps be desirous to know our bill of fare. Foot, I remember, in allusion to Francis, the Negro, was willing to suppose that our repast was black broth, but the fact was that we had a very good soup. A boiled leg of lamb and spinach, a veal pie, 
and a rice pudding. Big appetites, but maybe a little oblivious. Let's leave Johnson and Boswell behind. We're going to leave his house on the right. There's a little gateway in front of us, and you want to take the alleyway to the left. We're heading back to Fleet Street as we wend our way down this court and turn the corner. You'll come to an arch, turn left under this, and you will find your way quite quickly back to Fleet Street. As we turn into this little courtyard, you'll hear the fountain. And ahead of us, you'll see number three Johnson's Court. This was, in fact, a printer's premises in the 19th century. You can see from the big gates on the upper levels a way of getting the stuff out of the building. So turn left again, peek ahead, and you'll see Fleet Street, which is where we'll pick this up. You can hear the traffic. We're back on Fleet Street. Turn right and start walking up the hill to the next traffic light. So at the next traffic light, ahead of you, you'll see Fetter Lane. This is actually where the fire stopped way back in 1666. It was also the eastern boundary of the Anglo-Saxon settlement that was a little further along. But you're heading for Elvino. It was a long-time journalist's hangout. Walk a little bit right and you're going to go down through Old Mitre Court. So we're heading down through an archway into Old Mitre Court. And ahead of us you can see Mitre Court buildings, another archway. We want to go through that. You can see around us we have a combination of buildings on our left. We've got a modern, quite recent red brick structure. Coming out under the archway, you find yourself in another quad. On your left, you've got some red brick buildings. That's King's Bench Walk. On your right, you can see Francis Taylor Building. Directly opposite number two, King's Bench Walk, you want to go through the archway and you want to keep the library on your left. As you come out from this archway, your breath will be taken away. On your right, you've got a church. Ahead of you, you've got a hall with some Latin inscription on the front. On the left, another hall. What's going on? This is the temple. It's been the temple for a long time, but its use has changed greatly over the centuries. Originally, this is the home base of the Knights Templar. They're founded at the beginning of the 12th century. Jerusalem was conquered by the Crusaders right at the end of the 11th century. 20 years later, the Templars get going. They're set up to help pilgrims to the Holy Lands to make sure they can travel safely. They very quickly become very successful. They start controlling a lot of finance, and so they build centers in various parts of Europe. This is one of them. The first thing here is the church, specifically the round nave of the church, which is on your left as you look at it. This is modelled on the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem on Temple Mount. Shortly thereafter, in the early 13th century, they build the rest of the church. But things don't go well for the Templars. They run afoul of the papacy, and they are disbanded by order of the Pope in 1312. This site is then given to another crusading order, St. John, the Hospital Order. They occupy it in the middle of the 14th century. But already by that point, some of the properties here are being leased by students of law. The city is beginning to get going. Law is required. Let's roll the tape forward a bit. At the beginning of the 17th century, of course, there are no more monasteries. There are no more religious foundations in London. The benches, the name at that time for the lawyers who gather here, are given the freehold. 
at this point, the inns of court are becoming very fashionable places. It's where you can educate your sons. Admissions quintuple. They go up by a factor of five between the middle of the 16th century and the middle of the 17th century. Then, of course, comes the fire. The church still stands. The inns where the lawyers get their training, where they have to have a membership to practice the law, keep going. They're rebuilt on what you see now, which is a very collegiate plan. If you think of universities, you might recognize this. You have a church. You have a hall to eat in. You have a library. To the right of the church, you'll see the House of the Master. This is actually a recent reconstruction, piece for piece, of a much earlier original. And around it, you have the buildings where the lawyers these days simply work, but at one point lived as well. Names on either side of a staircase, which you might have seen in King's Bench Walk, we'll see again on the way out. The law has its ups and downs over the centuries, but by the middle of the 19th century, with empire taking off, with industry beginning to grind its gears, the law is extending This was famously caricatured by Charles Dickens in Bleak House. Here he is describing a scene just to the north of here. The Court of Chancery sat in Lincoln's Inn. On such an afternoon, if ever, the Lord High Chancellor ought to be sitting here, as here he is, with a foggy glory around his head, addressed by a large advocate with great whiskers, a little voice, and an interminable brief. This is the Court of Chancery, which has its decaying houses and its blighted lands in every shire, which has its worn-out lunatic in every madhouse and its dead in every churchyard, which has its ruined suitor with his slipshod heels and threadbare dress, which gives to moneyed might the means abundantly of wearying out the right. He's describing the famous case of Jandice and Jandice, a dispute over an estate which eventually comes to an end when there is no more money in the estate to pay the lawyers. After that, the law was reformed a bit, as we'll see in a minute, but English courts, English barristers, English lawyers still remain today a magnet for foreign companies and nationals suing for fraud, for libel and for divorce. So we're going to leave the temple now. We're not going to leave the law for just a little bit longer, but we're going to curve round the nave of the church. You can see ahead of you Dr. Johnson's buildings. Aim for that. So as you're heading for Dr. Johnson's buildings and then turning right up towards another gateway past the back of the church, you may, as you're walking through the temple, see lawyers in formal dress ready to go to court, which is quite a sight. And you'll also see these staircases, number two, Dr. Johnson's building, with the names of the lawyers who practice here written on the side, like colleges. So we're heading towards this archway, As you get a little bit closer, you'll see a date on it, which is 1905. That's a little bit deceptive. As we come back onto Fleet Street, you'll want to pause and look up. So as we come out of the inner temple gateway on your left, you'll see a sign for the temple church. But overhead, you'll see that the building overhangs the street. This is actually a survival. We're outside the area which was burned by the fire. We're opposite Chancery Lane named after the court which Dickens was just parodying. You can hear the traffic. We're back on Fleet Street. Turn left here. We're going to walk down here a little bit. Over on the right-hand side of the street, you can see the old Bank of England, not the main Bank of England, which we saw in the last walk, a branch of the bank, which now, of course, is a pub, the fate of many banks these days. 
We're coming up now on Temple Bar, this extraordinary column in the middle of the road. You'll see a statue of Queen Victoria facing us as we passed it. And as we pass Temple Bar, the street name changes. We're no longer on Fleet Street. We're now in the Strand. We're no longer in the city of London. We're now in Westminster. Keep going here, aim towards the church. We're going to cross over to the island in front of it. So we're on the Strand, the Strand, the name for a road next to a river. This used to be the closest road to the river. And already by the 12th century, it's beginning to be a bit of a suburb. There are grand mansions here. A source we have from the 12th century mentions their spacious gardens. But there's not much else. On the other side of the road, there is still open land. As we come up on the left, you'll see the tiny little tea shop, which is Twining's. That's a later arrival. That's here from the beginning of the 18th century. And you want to take the crossing right by Twining's and cross over to the island in front of the church. We're standing on this island and we're next to this rather elaborate streetlight. First thing to notice is that monument in the middle of the road that we passed just a little while ago. That is Temple Bar. At the beginning of this walk, next to St. Paul's, we picked up a big ceremonial gate in our head. This is where we put it down. This marked the boundary between the city and Westminster. That version of the gate is there from the late 17th century, built by Wren. And it lasts until 1878, if you can imagine the end of the 19th century and the kind of traffic. Finally, the gateway is removed and replaced with what you now have. The next thing to note, you can hear the bells already, is the church, which is behind you. Swing around and take a look. This is St. Clement Danes. Maybe it was founded, we still don't know, by Danish settlers right at the end of the first millennium. It's first recorded a couple of centuries after that. And the present version, again, is from the late 17th century. Nowadays, it's known as the Church of the Royal Air Force, but this has only been true since the 1950s. Look left and you'll see a sign for Essex Street. This is one of the traces of the aristocratic mansions that were here before the current development, the current street pattern. Essex Street was originally a bishop's mansion. After the dissolution of the monasteries, it becomes an aristocrat's mansion. The street itself is cut through late in the 17th century as land begins to increase its value. It led straight down to the river. There was an archway at the end to separate the houses from the business on the wharves. And then, turning 180 degrees, on the north side of the street, we have the Royal Courts of Justice. It's an incredible Gothic monument from the end of the 19th century, and it actually solves two problems with one building. As we've just heard in Dickens, by the second half of the 19th century, justice is beginning to grind to a halt. In part, it's because that's how the law works. In part, it's because the facilities aren't up to snuff. They're crowded down in Westminster, and so they commission this new building. It also solves another problem. By the end of the 19th century, this area where the courts now sit was seven acres of intensely disreputable slums. Building the court provides a way to clear them out. Having seen what was here long ago, having looked into the past, we now want to walk around to the other side of the church where we'll pick up the story and begin to look forward. So we're walking around the church, leaving it on our left. You'll hear the bells have stopped, unfortunately. And as we come around the corner, you'll come into this now broad plaza. 
with a lot of statuary. We're standing in front of the church, at the entrance to the church now. We're surrounded by statue, two men in military uniform on either side of us, a much taller figure in front. And we're looking straight ahead at a big traffic island, in fact. Where we are is the Old Widge. Old Widge is the old town. This is where the Anglo-Saxon settlement was based. This area on the north side of the Strand is built up by the middle of the 17th century, people beginning to service the mansions that are hereabouts. But by the later 19th century, we've just heard about this, this has become a massive slum. It's chronicled by the great observer, the mapper of London poverty, Charles Booth, who works with various researchers as well as the police to walk every street in the city and document its condition. Here's what he says about an area just north of where we are now in 1898. Narrow, asphalt, paved, blocked with empty market baskets, mean bones and bread lying about, doors open, windows broken, dirty, rough, poor children with sore eyes. And a court right next to that one, poor, again, rough, flower sellers, costers, news vendors, porters, and again, dirty children. So by the end of the 19th century, you have a problem. You have vast areas of the central city being not fit for purpose in the eyes of the elite. The London County Council is created in 1888 with greater powers than its predecessor, the Metropolitan Board of Works. And in 1900, they begin to clear the site. They clear 28 acres of slums. They create these roadways which serve to divide the law which we've just seen to the east from the theatres and markets of the West End. In front of us you have Aldwych. Its West End, further down, was aligned with Waterloo Bridge. Its East End, right in front of us here, heading down Arundel Street, was meant to lead to another bridge which was never built. And if we were to follow Aldwych round to the right, we would soon find an even bigger street, Kingsway. It opens in 1905. It's 100 feet wide. It has a tunnel underneath for electric trams, although they don't run these days. And on these streets and in the island in front of us, Aldwych itself, we have massive open spaces for new buildings. And most of them, as you can see, even from here, are built in that early 20th century imperial classical style. They're steel framed, they're monuments to an empire which is increasingly under threat. Closest to us, you can see we have Australia House. Just beyond it is Bush House, conceived by an industrialist as a trading centre, more famous as the home of the BBC World Service from 1941 to 2012. And just beyond Bush House, we have India House from the 1930s. For a new Indian High Commission, this is the point at which India is beginning to step towards self-government, and this is an acknowledgement of that. Aldwych also provides us a starting point to begin to talk about the third community, the third industry that begins to occupy, more recently, the space between the city and Westminster. We've talked about the press down on Fleet Street. We've talked about the law in the temple, clustering around Fleet Street and the Strand. And here, our third industry, is the academy. I'm going to start with the most recent one because you can't really see them, but it's the London School of Economics. Most of their buildings are close by here on the north side of the Aldwych. If we curve round to the right, you'll begin to see their logo. The London School of Economics starts out, in fact, as a socialist brainchild. It opens in 1895 with a couple of rooms on a street a little further down. And from the beginning of the 20th century, it really begins to take off. In 1920, its director calls it an institution on which the concrete never stops. A 
riff on the sun never setting on the British Empire, which is beginning to crumble. And it's continued to expand ever since. It's still building today. Its most recent one was opened in 2022, a little to the north of here. That's the London School of Economics. But there's another earlier institution, also part of the University of London, which is King's. So to continue the story of King's and of the Academy, we're going to start walking aim to the left of the grand statue and you want to cross this rather busy intersection diagonally. You can see on the far side a sign for Arundel Street and the Strand and I'll meet you there. So we're on the other side of the road, on the south side of the Strand, and we're walking up this street. We just mentioned these buildings in the middle of the Aldwych. On our right, we've got Australia House. You can see a kind of triumphant statue, a human figure with rampant horses right on the corner. Above it and to the side, a great pedimented roof, massive columns and so on. A real statement of imperial might at the beginning of the 20th century. Beyond it, you might start to see the pedimented bush house. But the story we want to tell here is the story of kings. Part of the University of London, a famous university in its own right these days, but which came into existence in the early 19th century, in part because of a religious dispute. A few years earlier, University College London had been started, and it had been started by non-establishment figures, utilitarians, Jews, non-conformists, which caused a lot of outrage amongst the establishment, amongst the Tories in particular. King's is established under royal patronage in 1829 as the Anglican University for London. It's immediately granted its first site here, and as we walk up the Strand on our left, we'll begin to see its famous alumni decorating the windows, which lead into that site. So we're going to keep walking across Surrey Street, another indication that there was once an aristocratic mansion here. If you just glance down to your left, you'll see a defunct entrance to a station for the tube. And at this point, you'll see Bush House much more clearly. Bush House currently occupied indeed by Kings. You can also see on your left the original buildings of Kings beginning to come into focus. So you may have heard we were just passing some very noisy roadworks. The city is always under construction, not just the buildings, but the roads too. You'll notice the entrance to the Strand Campus of Kings through this rather modernist building, a block that was built in the 1970s. And just beyond it, if you glance left, you'll see through the gateway the original campus much earlier from the 1830s. On our right, we're passing St. Mary Le Strand, a jewel box of a church. But we're going to keep going just a little further and turn left through a grand vestibule into Somerset House. So we've come off the Strand, we've walked through this very elaborate vestibule and this massive courtyard opens up in front of us. This is Somerset House. It wasn't originally, it was the original site of the church we've just passed, St. Mary Le Strand, but that's demolished in the mid-16th century 
for the first Somerset House. Later, it becomes adapted as a royal palace. It was another aristocratic mansion. But then in the late 18th century, the site becomes used for something else. And this new building is commissioned. It's purpose-built in a Palladian style, right onto the river, which we'll see in a moment. And you can see there is sculpture throughout. This is a place not for universities, which haven't come into existence yet, at least in London, but for learned societies and for government offices. So you have the Royal Academy here. You have the Royal Society for Antiquaries here. Most important at the time was the Navy office. The Navy was kind of run out of this suite of buildings, but also the tax office, the stamp office, and so on. Revenues were collected. That continues for a while. But it's a place also where a new vision for London comes into being. Here's John Soane, an architect we've mentioned before. At this point, he's president of the Royal Academy, and he delivers 12 lectures. This is the penultimate one, and he's not that happy with the current state of the city. I concluded my last lecture by expressing a hope that the spirit of improvement, which had so happily shown itself in many parts of the cities of London and Westminster, would be extended not only to every part of the metropolis, but to the utmost confines of this mighty empire. To this spirit of improvement, embellishment and utility, we owe the new bridges over the River Thames, the extensive and magnificent approaches thereto, and other improvements now in progress. It is to be lamented that in this great metropolis, this emporium of wealth, public monuments of national greatness are so few in number, that it seems as if it were the general opinion that architecture is unworthy of consideration. Soane, of course, is making a pitch for his profession, but it's also an interesting comment on the extent to which improvement is never full-blown. It never wipes away the past completely. It's always a little bit piecemeal. And indeed, Somerset House has changed over time. The buildings you can see in front of you are the original construction, but just to its east, we have King's College added on in a very similar style. The tenants of these buildings also change over time. Learned societies leave and the government moves in in even greater force in the middle of the 19th century. You can now find a lot of those learned societies further to the west on Piccadilly, down by the Albert Memorial. The Inland Revenue takes on a very big presence here. But then at the end of the 20th century, the government leaves and culture moves in, not least with the fountains, which you can hear in the background rather wonderfully. You've got the Courtauld Institute and the gallery here. You've got a lot of creative businesses here. You've got exhibition spaces. We're not, though, going to end the walk quite here. We want to walk through Siemens Hall, which you can see beyond the fountain. And we're going to find ourselves right by the river. It's a lovely place to reflect on what we've seen. As you walk through Siemens Hall, on your right you'll see a corridor. We're going to quickly dart down here and have a look at a wonderful staircase. So here we are in this extraordinary space, this lobby with this double stair arching over our heads and then over the middle of the lobby and then round again. This is the Nelson Stair, named in honour of the fallen hero of Trafalgar. It leads to the Navy boardroom on the upper floor, which is where the big decisions about strategy were made. So you're now out on the river terrace. Turn right and go up a little way, not all the way to the main road, 
that'll be a good place to stop to look at the South Bank and to think about what we've seen. So here we are. We're not going up the ramp to the road. We're just going to stay on the terrace right at the end. And we can look south. We can look over the river to the South Bank. Of course, originally it's a place of entertainment. It's outside the jurisdiction of the city, which means you can get away with things that might not be allowed. By the 18th century, you have pleasure gardens. In the 19th century, you have industry and docks. And then in the 20th century, something else happens. Specifically, what we can see here is a product of the middle of the 20th century. After the war, 1951, the Festival of Britain is an opportunity to rejuvenate British culture, but also the country more generally. The first thing you can see is the Royal Festival Hall over to your right, built in 1951, with other things coming later. On its left, the Hayward Gallery in the 1960s, the National Theatre in the 1970s. It's now a cultural complex, bringing back the early history of that part of London based on entertainment. We can also see from here the great Ferris wheel that is the London Eye. And also on this bank, you might have caught coming down Big Ben, the icon of the Houses of Parliament, which will anchor our next walk. So the next walk is going to begin in Embankment Gardens, To get to the beginning of that walk, you're going to want to go up the ramp, turn left onto the bridge, and then down the stairs. You'll go under the bridge, and on the other side of that, you will find Embankment Gardens. The next walk will begin in Embankment Gardens. I'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. This series was produced in partnership with the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. You can find out more about them at layersoflondon.org. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.